Hi, Gilbert. Hello. How are you? You're already here. I just got in. How are you doing? Good, good. How are you? If you could do me a, a favor since you opened the room, if you could click on my profile and make me a moderator. So you click on my picture and then down on the bottom, there's like different options. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Uh, let me, that way I can add the link and do things like that for Perfect. your presentation. How has your, like, wh where are you, um, do you have snow <laughs> today? We do not, we do not have snow, fortunately. <laughs> it, we just had rain, but it's been very unpredictable. Yeah, it's been so cold, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've been waiting for summer to start here and it has not come by. We had a few nice days, but it's been really like up and down, like so many degrees also, like fluctuation. It's crazy. Yeah, pretty much. St. Louis is pretty crazy as it is already, but yeah, we went from 70 to 40 degrees over the weekend so it's <laughs> yeah exactly we yeah. had like 30 something today uh, okay. in the morning that's crazy and then um i talked with somebody today that lived more north and they had snow so, <laughs> yeah. so i don't know it's weird um well the first when i moved from a postdoc um so i I've been here in in New York City for my PhD and in North Carolina, but then I moved back to Europe. Then I moved back, uh, I'm from Portugal, and then I moved back to um, to the US, uh, to Cape Cod for my postdoc. Hi, Cecilia. And it was Hello. the worst year. It was... <laughs> was that year when Boston they were drowned and so I didn't know what to do with it. I don't know if you remember where they had to make like tunnels so you could walk because they didn't yeah, know where to put it two anymore. Thousand and fourteen <laughs> or fifteen, right? Yeah, exactly. It was like yeah, yeah, hundred and fifty yeah. years worse. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. We were in the transition of I was in the transition of moving from Boston to St. Louis in 2014. Oh, so, so you yeah. still caught it? Yeah. <laughs> you were like... We, we, yeah, we, we just, we had just left. So we, we missed oh, the big thing. Oh, you're spin. so lucky. Yeah. The, but... the ocean froze. Like I was at the Marine Biological Laboratory, right? So I moved in the winter, in December. And on Martha's Vineyard, the, the wave froze. And the ocean oh. was frozen, so uh, my kids were in class with other, you know, on Cape Cod um, kids, and they are sometimes on these little islands, and they were stuck there and were running out of food because <laughs> nobody could get there. So right. It was like the worst. And they are, the, that couple just moved from Florida. So. Oh, no, nice one. So, yeah, <laughs> Good awakening there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They like sold uh, yeah. everything to buy like a little okay. island there on Cape Cod. So, but they still loved it. So, it's, anyway. <laughs> well, yeah. um, all our all our stuff got stuck during the move 
and they got delivered about two weeks later. Oh, yeah. Yeah, our stuff got stuck too, but other reasons. Like, we moved from Europe and, I don't know, the company we used to bring our stuff over, the, um, the duty or whatever, you know, it comes through the ocean, they didn't take off the paper, it took forever. So everything arrived and was full of mold because it was stuck in some container that apparently was wet. And then like our table, like everything, like old um, furniture from my family was full of oh, mold. I've never seen anything like this before. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> fun moving stories. <laughs> I don't even know, sorry to bring you here, but we we uh, usually wait a few minutes anyway, so it's more fun to have a nice conversation and just be quiet. Sure, no, no problem. No. Hello, Dr. Gallardo. Hello, how are you doing? I'm fine, how are you? Doing well. Did I say your name right? Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, that's... No, no worries. <laughs> I just want to make sure. So you are from... Gunnarvin, you're from Portugal. You're, I have a colleague of mine. I'm not sure if you know Luis de la Torre. He was a grad student in the Bonnie lab when I was a postdoc, and he's now at UCLA. Oh, uh, I don't know yeah. him personally, yeah. he, but... Um... He was a grad student at Harvard. Uh, from I think he left in 2015 or 16, somewhere around there. Okay. Yeah, I had friends that were at Harvard when uh, a postdoc. Uh, João Pekka and um, and um, yeah, and his wife and so. But um, they he is now a professor in Coimbra in Portugal, and then the other friends we had, they are now in Pittsburgh, professors oh, okay. there. And um, yeah, everyone, yeah. So Portugal used to have these great. PhD programs where you got like um, you could choose basically wherever you wanted to go to whatever lab. Uh, they were in a neuroscience PhD program like that. I was in a program that was completely free to choose, like whatever science field, whatever lab around the world, and they would pay for it and the travel back home once a year and stuff like that. So that's right, why right. like it enables like a few uh, people from Portugal to like go to really good labs. So um, yeah, we were lucky. Yeah, that's but a good that doesn't no. exist anymore. <laughs> it doesn't know. Wow. Yeah, they don't exist anymore. You can go now for one year or for two years for collaboration. Sorry, I have to t I had to say my daughter good night. Um, but not like the full uh, project anymore. So, but it's still okay. <laughs> yeah. So, um, welcome everyone. Um, shall we start? I think I sure. think we can slowly start. Welcome everyone to the Science Society. Thank you for coming, and um, we are very honored to have. Um, uh, guest speaker Gilbert Gallardo here. Um, he um, 
will be talking about this really interesting and important, um, like impactful work today. And uh, let me give you a little bit of background information. And, um, and then we usually, if that's okay with you, ask you a more general question about um, your science story, basically. <laughs> yep, yep. And then the stage is yours. Um, so yeah, um, doc, um, Dr. Gilbert Gallardo, he's a assistant professor of neurology. Uh, he's discovering mechanisms of neurodegeneration for potential, potential therapeutic interventions. He is at the, the part, and at the University, Washington University School of Medicine. Uh, he received his PhD in 2008 from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical School in Dallas and the laboratory of Dr. Uh, Thomas Uthoff. Um, he's now at Stanford University. And there he already started um, working on uh, studying alpha-synuclein, uh, a presynaptic protein that had been implicated in Parkinson's disease. Um, after completion of his graduate thesis, he performed his postdoctoral training at Harvard Medical School. And there he discovered a complex composed of the iron pump alpha-2 NAK-ATPase and the protein alpha and astrocytes um, and, and that it's upregulated in amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, ALS. And then he joined the lab of Dr. David uh, Holtzman as a senior research scientist at um, the Washington University School of Medicine. And his lab uh, focuses on understanding astrocytes and their cellular mechanisms of neuroinflammation and Alzheimer's disease. Um, so uh, yeah, his work has been um, studying um, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. And uh, yeah, we are so honored to having you here. Uh, Dennis, do you want to ask the more general questions? Thank you, Katarina. Hello, Dr. Gallardo. Um, Hello. Pleasure to have you with us here. Uh, the question that we have for you preliminarily is, what was your pathway to science? How did you come to be the scientist that you are today? You can go um, as far back as you'd like to. If there was a, an event early on, or there's a non-linear curve to your, to your um, trajectory of your current position, anything you want to get into. Well, it's a, it's, it's a good question because in reality, I, I would never have guessed that I would be in science, more specifically in neuroscience. When I was an undergrad, I was a psychology major. And my junior year, I decided to take an elective, which was microbiology. And I completely fell in love with the single cell, cell biology. And my, my undergrad advisor, which was Dr. Robert Webb, I went and asked him, is there a way you can study cell biology and the brain? And he said, dummy, it's called neuroscience. So I really actually didn't know much about neuroscience when I was an undergrad, but I really wanted to kind of combine the cell biology with neuroscience, with the with psychology. 
uh, from there, I did my master's in neuro and never looked back after that. Right on. Thank you so much. Um, and with that, we can get into your presentation. Sure, sure. So I, instead of the, to keep it more of a discussion, I have some slides here, but I think it's important to kind of give a little bit of history of how I started looking into astrocyte biology and how we found this complex. It wasn't necessarily that I had any specific questions in astrocytes. It was basically I had the right question with the wrong hypothesis, but the right tool. And it really, it goes back to when I was a postdoc in the Bonnie lab. If we go to slide number seven, on slide seven, there's a diagram that illustrates there's a complex of FOXL3 together with 1433 protein. And a few years prior to me joining the lab of the Bonnie lab, uh, Maria had discovered this pathway in which FOXL3 regulates cell death upon oxidative stress. Now, on, over to your left, there's a uh, Western blot that illustrates upon oxidative stress, this leads to phosphorylation of MST kinase. After that, MST kinase will target the phosphorylation of FOXL3. Now, normally, FOXL is confined to the cytoplasm. However, upon phosphorylation, it, it disassociates from 1433 complex, which is which sequesters it in the cytoplasm, and this enables FOXL to in, enter into the nucleus and lead to a apoptotic cell death in neurons. If we go to the next slide, so when I joined, I had read this study and I had talked to Azad. I said, as a graduate student, we we're looking at 1433 protein, and what we had found is that and these familiar mouse models of Parkinson's disease that overexpressed a human mutation alpha-synuclein, we found that there was a decrease in 1433 protein in symptomatic mice. Unfortunately, though, we got scooped by Bruce Yankner's lab, who is now my neighbor, and which they found that the alpha-synuclein made an interaction with 1433. But I thought, is it possible in neurodegenerative diseases, is 1433 somehow dysregulated which will lead to a activated FOXL3 protein and can then lead to some cell death and or neuro, neurodegeneration. In ALS, there has also have been some suggestions that motor neurodegeneration was, could be mediated by oxidative stress. So luckily, the neighboring lab had a ALS mouse model, which is the G85R. Now this, mouse model uh, develops motor neuron degeneration right around five months. So the question was rather simple. If we go to the next slide, the Bonnie lab had generated an antibody that recognized it, phosphorylated FOXL at serine 212. So we decided to do an immunoblot by taking two-month-old wild-type mice, SOD transgenic mice, which are asymptomatic, five-month-old, which are symptomatic, and do an immunoblot with the FOXL, uh, phospho-FOXL3 antibody. What we found is that there is a really nice immunoreactivity, as you can see in the top left uh, immunoblot. And we knew that this protein was phosphorylated. And if you do a lambda phosphatase, it completely eliminated the immunoreactivity. So this initially suggested to us that FOXL3 is phosphorylated in symptomatic mice that are SOD transgenic mice. However, we quickly ran into some puzzling. Uh, we weren't too sure if this was actually FOXL. 
Foxel runs around 50 kilodons, and this this immunoreactive band was actually 110 kilodons, somewhere between 105 and 110. So we knew that when Foxel is phosphorylated, it is localized to the nucleus. So the next thing I did, it was just a membrane fractionation, salicylic fractionation, and a nuclear fractionation. I'm not even showing the nuclear uh, uh, fraction here. And that pretty much all of this protein was localized to the membrane. And this was really puzzling because the protein size was wrong, the localization was wrong, but there was clearly a phosphorylated protein. So if we move to the next slide, we were very fortunate that this antibody could effectively immunoprecipitate this immunoreactive band. So I did an IP, cut it out, I silver stained it, cut out the band, and sent it for mass spec. I was down that kind of how to bet. He, he was betting that it was a new isoform for FOXL3. However, when we got the mass spec back, it came back as the sodium ATPase, the alpha aducin, the ATPase, or dynamite. And initially, I thought that this has to be a mistake. I mean, there's, there's, this antibody was specific for FOXL3, right? It's, it's serine 212 of FOXL3. So <clears throat> he decided, we decided to do another mass spec analysis in collaboration with the HANO lab. So I redid the next uh, the IP. If we go to the next slide, sent it for mass spec analysis again. It came back as the ATPase, the ATPase, alpha aducin, dynamin, or clathrin. Pretty much the identical proteins that were identified in the first mass spec analysis. So at this point, we were pretty convinced that this antibody that was raised and generated in the Bonnie lab was somehow cross-reacting with one of these proteins. Likely it was the ATPase or the alpha-aducin protein. Now, if we go to the next slide, it just kind of gives a general idea of what these two proteins are. The alpha-aducin protein is a spectrin actin binding protein, and it's been well characterized to maintain the integrity of the cell membrane. In blood cells, as if we see at the bottom to your left, the unique structure of these blood cells is regulated by the alpha-aducin protein. If you knock it out, you see that it become more spherical. Whereas the sodium ATPase has been well characterized as an ionic pump that regulates the sodium and potassium uh, homeostasis, which it pumps out three sodiums out, brings in two potassiums in. And when we looked at the literature, though, we go to the next slide. It was pretty amazing to think that we had pulled down a protein complex that had already been described in another disease, which is hypertension. In the hypertensive field, it had been, uh, had been already illustrated that mutations in the adducent protein led to an increase uh, ion pumps at the membrane, in which normally it leads to the clathrin-mediated endocytosis. And when we look at our mass spec data, we had pulled down clathrin, we had pulled down dynamin, and we pulled down the alpha and the sodium ATPase, suggesting that maybe this protein complex is working in a similar fashion as in hypertension field. So at this point, we, we had this hypothesis as ALS, hypertension of the central nervous system. Our next task was to <clears throat> identify which one of these proteins was being recognized by the FOXL3 antibody. And 
to do so, I, we, there was a commercially available alpha-ducin antibody that we could effectively IP the protein. And we did it under denaturing conditions. So if we go to the next uh, slide, we can see that this is an IP in which it's 1% triad or 1% SDS plus 0.5% deoxycholic acid. At 1% SDS, we, we figured that this would break up any protein interaction. We can then dilute this back down to 0.2%, perform the IP with the alpha-ducin antibody, and immunoblot with the Foxyl P212 antibody. And this revealed that this antibody was cross-reacting with the alpha-ducin protein. And we we're also able to identify which serine it was actually being detected, which was serine 436. We did a number of different serine tailing mutations. <clears throat> well, but in reality, what happened here is that for some reason, the magical rabbit that was used to make the Foxhole antibody actually made an antibody to the alpha-ducin protein as well. I was, now that we had the serine 436 site, I made a phosphoserine 436 peptide and was able to isolate the antibody from the serum that was in the body lab and also isolate an antibody to the FOXL3 protein. So this rabbit just somehow made an antibody to both of these proteins. And it was just really by chance that we asked the right question, but it was completely wrong. It wasn't that we were looking for FOXL3. It was this alpha-adducent protein seemed to be phosphorylated in this transgenic mouse for SOD. So at this point, we decided to go ahead and investigate a little bit more. And if we go to the next slide, we got the SOD transgenic mice. This is the, the G93A mouse model, which has a more rapid onset. And they start getting around more than around degeneration between 120 to 130 days, and end stages around 150 days. And what we found is that the total protein of alpha-ducin was actually upregulated together with its phosphorylation. Now, fortunately, the serine 436 phosphoreducin antibody was available through Santa Cruz. So if we look at the next slide, this now enables us to look at where it was localized to. And this is where astrocytes were first really introduced to, to my world, and that this phosphoreducin seemed to be predominantly in astrocytes. Now, there's a number of Western blots in this slide here. But if we go down to the, the middle immunoblot where it says primary culture, we did a primary astrocyte culture together with a, with, with a mortar neuron culture and did an immunoblot for alpha-aducin. And we found that the alpha-aducin was predominantly in the astrocytes together with the phosphorylated aducin. And we can see that, that these are actually astrocytes and that there's GFAP. Whereas in mortar neurons, there's, there is some expression, but it was much, much less. When we looked at the ventral horns of symptomatic SOD transgenic mice, we found that the phosphoreducin nicely co-localized with GFAP. Now, at this point, Azad was not really excited that it was astrocytes. Um, we had to take do some convincing that it would be it'd be interesting to see what this protein is doing in astrocytes. Fortunately for me, that there are some really nice studies coming out that were suggesting that astrocytes were playing a direct role in ALS. And if we go to slide number 20, these studies were initiated by the Cleveland lab. Now, around 2000, 
2002, around 2000, they had an initial paper suggesting that non-neuronal cells were impacting the progression of motor neuron degeneration. These two follow-up studies in which they use a conditional knockout of the mutant SOD from either microglia, which is the top left, or in astrocytes, which is the one to your right, this suggested that both of these glia cells were directly impacting motor neuron degeneration. And if we look down to the corner, two other key studies, one by the Przybyszki's lab, the other one by Kevin Egan's lab, they demonstrated that if you take astrocytes, your primary or uh, in primary or stem cell derived SOD mutant astrocytes, culture them with motor neurons, this leads to motor neuron degeneration, suggesting that these astrocytes display a gain of toxicity. And then more, a little bit later on, the Kaspar's lab was able to illustrate that if you isolate astrocytes from post-mortem sporadic and familial ALS patients, that these astrocytes also display this gain of toxicity. So this now gave a little bit more, a little bit more backbone to to investigate what is the role of astrocytes and the alpha ducin protein in these SLD transgenic mice. We move on to the next slide. I first utilized this co-culture paradigm in which we can culture either wild type astrocytes or mutant SLD astrocytes, and on top of that, put mortar neurons. In the middle panel to your top left, these are wild-type astrocytes, which are co-culture with motor neurons. Over to your right uh, top panel, these are mutant SOD astrocytes, which are cultured with um, motor neurons. And we can see that there is a significant loss of motor neuron um, survival. And also there is uh, abnormalities in, in dendritic arborization. However, when we knock down the alpha-ducin protein in astrocytes and the mutant astrocytes, which are the lower uh, left panel, this rescued the motor neuron cell death. And we knew that the RNAi was specific in that we generated a rescue construct in which we can knock down the, the endogenous alpha-ducin and reintroduce a new alpha-ducin that is not recognized by the hairpin. And this led to back to the gain of toxicity, which is the lower right panel, illustrating that this leads to motor neuron cell death. Now at this point, we were, we were pretty convinced that the alpha-ducin was playing a direct role in regulating this gain of toxicity in mutant SOD astrocytes. But in the hypertension field, the, the hypertension was mediated predominantly by the sodium ATPase and that the adducin increased the activity of sodium ATPase at the cell surface. So the next question for us, does the sodium ATPase actually play a role in these SOD transgenic mice? If we go to slide 23, we did a, an immunoblot for the alpha-2 sodium ATPase. And we decided to focus on the alpha-2 because in the literature at that point, at that time, it was suggested the alpha-2 was selectively expressed in astrocytes. And given that the alpha-ducin was already in astrocytes, we figured maybe the alpha-2 is also playing a role. Whereas the alpha-1 is more ubiquitously expressed and the alpha-3 is more selectively for neurons. Doing an immunoblot for the alpha-2 in symptomatic SOD transgenic mice relative to wild type, we found that it was also enriched, very similar to the alpha-ducin protein. Now, if we go down to slide 25, and again, this is where 
the astrocytes came back into my role because we validated that the alpha-2 sodium ATPase was selectively expressed in astrocytes, at least in the spinal cord of these SOD transgenic mice. Now, the immunofluorescence on the top are asymptomatic mice that is co-stained with GFAP and the sodium ATPase, and we see that there is really nice co-localization. The bottom half is symptomatic SOD transgenic mice, in which we see that there's an increase of the GFAP that co-localize with the alpha-2 sodium ATPase. If we look at the primary cultures, we see that the in the mutant SOD mice, we see that there is also an increase of the sodium ATPase. And very similar to what was, was illustrated in the hypertension field, if we knock down alpha-ducin protein, this also led to a dysregulation of the sodium ATPase. And we see a decrease. Now, that's the aminoblot over to your left on the bottom, in which we see we illustrate that knocking down alpha-ducin decreased the sodium ATPase levels even in the wild type. So this, this was very reminiscent to hypertension in that the alpha-ducin protein regulates the sodium ATPase, and it seemed to be doing a very similar role in these astrocytes uh, with, that display a gain of toxicity. So if we go next to the next slide, utilizing this co-culture paradigm and also um, generating a lentivirus that we can now uh, express an RNAi to knock down the sodium ATPase, we validated that knocking down the sodium ATPase in astrocytes, in these SOD transgenic astrocytes, led to a protective effect. Now, we also injected this lentivirus unilateral in the ventral horn, in which the counterlateral side could be our control. And we decided to target the alpha-2 rather than the alpha-ducin for two main reasons. One, it was thought to be selective for astrocytes. And the other, the other thought was that the sodium ATPase is an enzyme. And the rationale being is that if we knock down an, an enzyme, we may have a stronger effect rather than if we knock down a protein, which is the alpha-ducin protein. So knocking down the sodium ATPase unilaterally in the ventral horn Comparing that to the counterlateral side, we found that there was an increase in motor neuron survival. These are uh, labeled with the SMI-132. And the GFPs are the astrocytes. Now, we did extensive analysis to show that the GFP was localizing with the astrocytes. Now, in this initial uh, study, we used a CMV GFP promoter. And it turns out that CMV shuts down in neurons. And that's likely why we don't see much co-localization with the neurons. However, we, in the newer study that we have now, we made a new construct in which we express the GFP under a GFAP promoter so that we can selectively look at the astrocytes. So at this point, we were pretty convinced that the sodium ATPase and the alpha-ducin protein were regulating this gain of toxicity in astrocytes in SOD transgenic mice. And if we look at slide 28, when we looked at the survival of uh, crossing now the SOD transgenomics for heterozygotes for the alpha-2 ATPase, we found that this increased their overall survival. So we were able to demonstrate that if we target either the knockdown by RNAi or crossing these mice for heterozygotes for the alpha-2, both were neuroprotective. And if we move down to 
slide 30. So at this point, we were pretty excited that we, we kind of fell into this sodium ATPase complex regulating this gain of toxicity. However, one major question that still remained is, is the upregulation of this alpha-2 alpha sodium ATPase and alpha-ducin due to the expression of the mutant SOD in astrocytes? Or is it more of a gain of toxicity? Or is it regulating more of a general inflammatory response? So to address that question, we decided to look at whether this complex is being expressed in other neurodegenerative diseases. And this is when I started my lab over here at, at, at WashU. If we go to slide 32, now at WashU, there's a major emphasis in trying to understand the uh, Alzheimer's disease in general. Uh, there's there's a, a lot of nice resources that we have here on hand and a lot of nice collaborators that have been studying Alzheimer's for many, many, many years. So one of the diseases that we decided to focus on was Alzheimer's disease. And obviously, we're all familiar that Alzheimer's disease is a dual proteinopathy that has both the amyloid plaques that are extracellularly and also the accumulation of tau pathology intracellularly. But another component of Alzheimer's disease that has recently gotten quite a bit of attention is the inflammatory response, which is composed of both the microglia, the astrocytes, and also what I don't include in this diagram, the oligodendrocytes. Now, more recently, there's been a large emphasis on trying to understand the microglial response, predominantly how they're altering the plaque burden. But one question that remains still in the, in the Alzheimer's field and telopathies in general is what is the contribution of astrocytes? So having that we had already identified this protein complex in another mouse model for degeneration, we decided to evaluate the protein levels of the sodium ATPase in a mouse model of telopathy. Now, this is a PS19 tau transgenic mouse. If we move over to slide 33, we, we, were, we took advantage of the ADRC here, which they can provide us some brain uh, tissue from AD patients and control uh, patients. And we did an immunoblot for the alpha-2, and we found that there was an upregulation of the alpha-2 sodium ATPase very similar to what we found in the ALS uh, study. And in collaboration with Celeste Card, she looked at the ATPase uh, expression in Alzheimer's patients, and very, we, we found that there was an increase in the expression in Alzheimer's uh, patients relative to control. Looking at our mouse model, which is a PS19 mouse model, which overexpresses a P3ONS uh, mutation in human tau, we found that immunoblotting for the alpha-2 sodium ATPase, there is an age-dependent increase that correlated with GFAP, very similar to what we see in the humans. Now, in our first study, we also used Wabane and digoxin to block the sodium ATPase in our co-cultures of our mutant SOD astrocytes. Now, this is the, the uh, panel over down to your right. And Wabane and digoxin are well-characterized inhibitors of all three isoforms. However, digoxin does display a higher affinity for the alpha-2. Uh, it has about a tenfold higher affinity relative to the alpha-1 and a hundredfold higher affinity relative to the alpha-3. So in our next study, what we decided to do is to evaluate 
what is the role of the astrocytes in telopathy by blocking the activity of sodium ATPase? Now, if we look at the next slide at 34, our P3 and S tau transgenic mice have an age-dependent telopathy and astrogliosis. So right around eight months, we see that there is now tau deposition or tau aggregates together with astrogliosis. So in our initial study, in this initial cohort, what we decided to do is to analyze whether if we block the sodium ATPase prior to disease onset by infusing the joxin directly into the brain at six months, will this delay the tau pathogenesis? We move over to uh, slide 35. In doing so, we, we actually inject, we infused the joxin at three different concentrations. We, we only published a 0.1 and a 0.5. We also had done a one micromolar. However, the one micromolar, the little guys were not really, they, they were not necessarily recovering too well from the, the uh, pump surgeries. And although there was some protection, there also seemed to be a little bit more damaging of the, the ventricles. So we decided to concentrate on the 0.1 micromolar and 0.5 micromolar digoxin. And this diagram here in slide 35, this is infusion of 0.5 digoxin. And over in the top panels, this is staining for phosphorylated tau, which is ATA, which is a pathological hallmarker of, of tau. And the MC1, which is in yellow, is a antibody recognizes aggregated tau. And what we found that is that if you infuse the joxin prior to disease onset, age them to nine and a half months, this led to a decrease in tau pathology. More importantly, if we look to the panels on the bottom, we see that there is extensive amount of brain atrophy in tau uh, control mice. There is enlargements of their ventricles, thinning of the periform cortex, and also hippocampal atrophy. And infusing digoxin, we found that this prevented the brain atrophy. We get an increase in the uh, hippocampal uh, volume, a decrease in the ventricular size, and an increase in the periform cortex. If we go to slide 36, we found that the infusion of digoxin also suppressed the astrogliosis and microgliosis. Now, th this study, this, this analysis was actually is pretty uh, to me, is it's uh, there's been some studies suggesting that microglia are upstream of astrocytes. However, what we're showing in this study here is that it seems that the central nervous system is more of a network, and that if you affect the inflammatory state of one glia cell, you're likely going to affect the inflammatory state of the other ones. So in here, we're targeting the astrocytes, and we see there's a really strong suppression of microgliosis. Now, if we move on to slide 37, the next question was, is targeting the inhibition of sodium ATPase after disease onset, will this also delay and suppress astrogliosis and microgliosis? Now, this is important since in Alzheimer's patients, there is no way, there's no method for us to know if they're pre-symptomatic. So we decided to infuse digoxin at eight months. At this point, there is chronic astrogliosis and microgliosis together with some tau pathology and infused it for six weeks. Moving over to slide 38, we found that very similar in our preventive study, 
Infusing digoxin led to a decrease in phosphorylated tau, together with the decrease in MC1 staining, which is aggregated tau. It prevented the hippocampal atrophy. Didn't significantly decrease the ventricular volume, but there was a trend in the decrease, but it did increase the overall periform cortex. In slide 39, when we looked at the astrogliosis and microgliosis, we found that this also suppressed astrogliosis and microgliosis. Now, this was an important uh, evaluation that we infused digoxin after astrogliosis had set in. So this suggested that digoxin is exerting anti-inflammatory effects. And if we look at a panel of different chemokines and cytokines, the TNF-alpha, IL-16, and IL-1-beta, and CXCL-10, all of these chemokines and cytokines have been demonstrated to be elevated in Alzheimer's patients. And what we found is that in our tau transgenic mice, there's an increase of these cytokines, chemokines, and infusion digoxin led to a significant decrease. Except for the IL-1 beta, there was a trend in the decrease. Now, these P3NS mice, if any of you are familiar with it, they are highly variable. So we do need quite a bit of number of ends in order to get significance. And that there's some mice that just get very little tau pathology and very little brain atrophy. So if we go to uh, slide 40, so far what we have discovered is that this targeting the sodium ATPase in a mouse model for ALS led to protection of motor neuron degeneration. If we target it in a mouse model of telepathy by pharmacological inhibition, we find that this also prevents tau pathogenesis. And in unpublished studies, we've also done this in a mouse model for amyloidosis. Now, this is an APPPS1 mouse that develops plaque burden right around between six to eight months. In this amyloidosis mouse model, we also now have a conditional knockout for the alpha-2 sodium ATPase. And what we're finding that if we either do digoxin or pre-immediate knockout of the alpha-2 specifically in astrocytes, this decreases the plaque burden, but it also changes the, the amount of microglia associated with the plaques. So again, this suggests to us that the, the in the central nervous system, that this is more of a network in which affecting the astrocytes is also affecting the microglia response. In, in this study, we're trying to figure out what is a mechanism by which these astrocytes are regulating the microglia response. Now, at this point, we knew that targeting the alpha-2 sodium ATPase was uh, leading to an anti-inflammatory response, but we wanted to somehow link them together. And if we go to slide 41, looking at our mouse model for ALS, we had found that there's a number of pro-inflammatory and uh, molecules that were upregulated that were suppressed when we crossed our mice for the alpha-2 sodium ATPase heterozygotes. One particular protein that, that stuck out to us was LCN2 protein, and that LCN2 has already been implicated to play a role in Parkinson's disease and also in TDP43 proteinopathy. If we look at slide 42, in this study here, they used a LCN2 knockout mouse and looking at a mouse, at a mouse model for Parkinson's disease. This is the MPTP, uh, chemically induced dopaminergic uh, neuron degeneration mouse model of Parkinson's disease. And what was reported that knocking out LCN2 
decreased astrogliosis and decreased microgliosis and protected dopaminergic neuron from MPTP uh, toxicity. So we thought, is it possible that LCN2 is also mediating the tau pathology that we see in our P21S tau transgenic mice? So looking at slide 43, we immunostain for LCN2, and we found that for the most part of it, at least in our, in our mice, we see that LCN2 predominantly localizes with the astrocytes, which is GFAP. Now, there are some reports that LCN2 is upregulated by microglia, but we, didn't have, we don't really see much microglia co-localization with the, our LCN2 staining. Now, if we looked at the LCN2 levels by ELISA, we see that following the Joxian administration, there is a really strong suppression of LCN2 expression in the brains of these tau transgenic mice, suggesting that one mechanism by which this uh, tauopathy is being progressed is by the expression of LCN2, which is downstream of the sodium ATPase. However, when we so to, to evaluate this uh, possibility, what we decided to do is to overexpress LCN2. However, there are, had been some more recent studies that suggested that LCN2 may actually have some protective roles. This was done in a mouse sepsis model. Uh, this work was done by uh, John Fryer, in which in sepsis, an LCN2 knockout had more brain damage. So we decided to overexpress LCN2 in our tauopathy mice by AAV-mediated uh, gene expression at P0 by bilateral injections, but age them to eight months. And we thought eight months would be a good time point. This would give us a window to evaluate whether LCN2 is going to be detrimental or is it going to be protective. So if we look at slide 44, we, we found that overexpressing LCN2 led to an increase in tau pathology, both ATA and MC1. But what was really confusing to us is when we looked at astrogliosis and microgliosis in slide 45, we found that there was not a significant increase in either the astrocytes or the microglia when we overexpressed LCN2 protein. We also had some wild-type mice uh, that um, we didn't illustrate here that we had aged to six months and nine months. And the wild-type mice overexpressing LCN2 also did not lead to an increase in astrogliosis and microgliosis which suggested to us that potentially LCN2 is mediating some toxicity by targeting neurons directly. So we looked at the LCN2 receptor, which is the SLC you know, on slide 46, and we found that the LCN2 SLC receptor is expressed in neurons. And one mechanism that we potentially hypothesize that may, may be occurring here is that LCN2 is making neurons more vulnerable for the spreading of tau pathology. Now, we're all pretty familiar with one potential mechanism by which tau is spreading across the brain is in this prion-like mechanism, which tau can become extracellularly and seed neighboring neurons in which then it can spread tau pathology. And to address this potential possibility, we decided to look at primary neurons in which we incubated fluorescently labeled tau with or without LCN2. And that's the graph where you're to your right. And when we incubated tau with LCN2, we found that there was an increase in tau uptake in these neurons. 
which suggested to us that one mechanism to how we're increasing tau pathology by overexpressing AV, uh, by overexpressing LCN2, is by tau uptake. And so if we go to the last slide, which is 47, um, this kind of gives you a general idea of how we unexpectedly have stumbled upon a complex in astrocytes in which the sodium ATPA seems to be regulating not just a gain of toxicity and what we saw in, in SOD transgenic mice, but also more of a general inflammatory response. There's been other studies, additional studies by another group that have reported that the alpha-2 sodium ATPase also mediates the LPS interferon gamma activation of astrocytes in which using the heterozygotes um, alpha-2 sodium ATPase knockout mice, there's a decrease in LPS response in the brain. So I think by good fortune and asking the, the right question, but having the wrong hypothesis and having the right magical rabbit that generate this antibody to um, enable us to identify this protein complex in astrocytes. And there's much, much for us to really try to understand. Uh, our current studies right now are trying to understand the mechanism by how this alpha-2 sodium ATPase is regulating the astrocyte inflammatory response. And also we're trying to understand the protein complex itself. We do have some data suggesting the alpha-ducin is upregulated. Uh, in human samples though, and the, as far as the RNA seq or the single nuke data that's out there, the alpha-ducin doesn't seem to be, to be increased, whereas the alpha-2 does seem to be increased. But the alpha-ducin may be regulated more at the protein level. So that's kind of the general study that we recently published in our previous study and how we got kind of involved in astrocytes. Now, just for uh, to give thank you to a number of people in the lab, and we go to slide 48. Uh, Carolyn Mann is she was the the she was a technician in the lab when she initiated this the Jackson study, and she just recently accepted a graduate program at UPenn. Sri is a postdoc that helped us address the reverse comments together with Amber and Corey, and the other lab members work in some aspects to understanding astrocyte reactivity or in developing these uh, immunotherapies. Collaborator Celeste Karch, uh, she did the analysis of human uh, data looking at the alpha-2 expression. I've had a number of collaborations with uh, the Holtzman lab, and Hanno Sting did the mass spec analysis, and obviously the, I'm very thankful for the funding resource, which is uh, Cure Alzheimer's, the Coins for Alzheimer's, the Centane Corporation, and the NIH, and then my two uh, fur babies, which is my main coon, which is in the center, and my rag doll over to your right. Yeah, thank you so much for this amazing presentation. Uh, you covered um, so much, and uh, you um, really discovered like a lot of mechanisms that are. Um, yeah, it's um, it's quite amazing work. And um, is there a plan to? Uh, I'll I'll give in a minute the the. Um, questions to, to everyone else, but is there a plan uh, to use the drug um, in clinical trials? Um, because as far as I understand, it's already used for, uh, is it cardiovascular 
uh, disease um, diagnosed? It, it, it's been, it's not too commonly used anymore. There's a lot of derivatives of the digoxin. Um, so one of the complications that we, the reason we infuse this in directly into the brain is that we did try doing intraperitoneal injections of, of the joxin and the SOD transgenic mice, and we gave the little guys a heart attack after about two weeks because the alpha-2 and the alpha-1 are expressed in the, in the heart. However, there are some studies. There was one just published in January in which they were looking at historical data of individuals that had hypertension that were treated with the joxin, and it was suggested that they had a lower risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. We are not necessarily going to look at whether the joxin is going to be a therapeutic value. We're, we're more interested in developing a new angle to target the alpha-2 subunitase. So one of the other aspects that my lab works on is developing immunotherapies. So we're thinking about potentially targeting the ATPase with an antibody. Yeah, thank you. And um, the, you, uh, I, you also showed data about um, uh, the work you did with, in ALS, and that's um, that's a really interesting um, mechanism you show there. Um, we had a guest speaker. I don't know if you know her last week, um, Dr. Brigitte uh, Van Zundert. I'm not sure if you know her. She showed that um, there there is a release of inorganic polyphosphate um, in ALS by astrocytes that causes like um, also toxicity in motor neurons. Um, did you uh, by any chance look also at this or is it um, probably not? Um, no, we did not look at that. Uh, we haven't really looked at what the astrocytes are secreting in specifically, uh, but we do think that the, we do know that blocking the ATPase blocks a lot of the pro-inflammatory molecules that are secreted, at least by our uh, ELISA analysis. But no, I'll, I'll look up that study to see maybe. Can, yeah, because yeah. interestingly, she doesn't know what causes the secretion. Like, she thinks it's like to compensate uh, for something that is happening in the system, basically. So I thought there might be a connection there. Um, so, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, please, everyone who has a question, flash your mics, uh, raise your hands, and um, yeah, go ahead. Okay, I, I can. Thank you so much, Gilbert. That was really very interesting uh, research. And um, I mean, I just pay attention about the LCN2, which you explained in your slides. And we know that they are using that as a biomarker of the brain injury. And also for the, I mean, there is a role for the regulation mechanism and expression of that. I mean, in some of the studies, they just... I mean, going through to use that as a biomarker, but I see that there was a report about the NOx activation in reactive astrocytes, which it, it has a role in the LCN2 expression and for sure in the neurodegeneration. 
I was just wondering, did you heard about that? Because it's, it was right, yeah, we, so that was our original hypothesis that LCN two was going to activate the astrocytes and make it more a more of a exacerbated inflammatory response, which then would propagate tau pathology. Um, but we actually didn't see that. We're really yes, surprised. Yes, it, it just published. So yeah. <laughs> I want to tell you. Huh. Yeah, Ten I'll hours ago, it published. Really, I don't so think that was to Yeah, okay. we. Uh, yeah, no, we're really puzzled about why we didn't see an increase in astrogliosis in our by overexpression of LCN2. Now, one limitation to our our study is that, and reviewers kind of hammered us on this one, is that we use a CBA promoter to overexpress. Um, and talking to John Fryer, who has worked in LCN2, he thought that expressing LCN2 from distinct cell populations may have different functions. So that might be, uh, may have played a role, why we didn't see too much increase of astrogliosis. Now, again, uh, the GFAP is not necessarily a good marker to look at for astrogliosis. I mean, it doesn't necessarily say that they're more reactive, but at least percent area covered. But I'll look for that study. Yeah, that's an sure. Idea. Also, in vitro, they just did the ischemia in astrocyte culture. Yeah, okay. That's how they just increased the secretion of the LCN2. That was interesting to me. Well, we use LCN2 as a marker for inflammation in our studies now because it's it is pretty. It consistently goes up when you stimulate astrocytes and culture uh, by a number of means. So we we use LCN2 as a good marker for inflammation. Thank you. Um, Serena, anyone wants, um, please flash your mic. Oh, I saw Joanne, um, you joined. Yeah, please go ahead. Um, yeah, sorry, I actually joined late. So maybe um, he actually explained this from the beginning now, Bosch. I was, I just wanted to ask, what is the rationale for actually using the Jackson as, you know, as your intervention, if you get what I mean? So the the original rationale, there's other inhibitors for the ATPases. The thing that we chose the Joxin for is that it has a higher affinity for the alpha-2. Now, there's three different isoforms of the sodium ATPases. There's the alpha-1, which is ubiquitously expressed, the alpha-3, which is in neurons, and then the alpha-2, which is in astrocytes. And the Joxin has about tenfold higher affinity for uh, relative to the alpha-1 and 100-fold higher relative to the, the alpha-3. So that's why we, we decided to go with the, the Joxin. And, uh, and also, we had the cell culture analysis suggesting that the pharmacological inhibition of the astrocytes or the alpha-2 was protecting um, immortal neuron degeneration. Amazing. It's actually really amazing because um, the Joxin is known to work for for heart diseases, so it's kind of uh, quite um, interesting just to know that it's actually used for research for Alzheimer's disease. So, um, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, the, the Johnson effects are pretty strong. Um, there was a Nature paper, I believe, in two thousand eleven. They're looking at EAE mouse model, the uh, encephalitis. Um, the MS mouse model. And what they, they had done a screen and they found that uh, the joxin 
had anti-inflammatory effects on T cells, which led to a decrease in EAE. So I think there's some parallels to what we see in T cells that we see in astrocytes and that we block the CYMHPAs with the joxin. There's at least two anti-inflammatory effects. That was a, it was a Nature paper in 2011. Thank you. Um, anyone else wants to ask a question? If not, I'll keep asking. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, Katie, go ahead, please. Hi, it's Katie speaking. I just wanted to say thank you so much for such a fascinating talk and really, really important research, um, very near and dear to my heart. Um, and thank you once again, Katerina and all the team for organizing such um, a great room and great speakers. Um, I am just wondering, you know, really fascinating research and exciting to, um, you know, find the mechanisms that also might lead to treatment for Alzheimer's. And I noticed you had um, ALS and Parkinson's in there. And, um, you know, there's been a lot of research and news lately um, that COVID is um, producing similar cognitive decline and um you know neurodegeneration and i was just wondering whether you are going to look into this or whether you feel like this might be applicable um even if it's the inflammation markers or anything like that um and thank you so much again for such an amazing um conversation and spending your time with us thank you um, thank you for the, thank you for the invitation it's it's always helpful to uh get really nice questions and intriguing questions as, as far as the relationship to, um, let's say, COVID and even obesity, there's been suggestions that obesity and COVID leads to some type of brain inflammation. And I think that in general, if we can attenuate brain inflammation at some level, it would be protective. Um, I'm not, my lab probably won't specifically look into whether we can you know, block this COVID or obesity type of brain inflammation. But I think one mechanism that's going to become a little bit more involved is the innate immunity. Uh, I think there's some studies coming out suggesting that the B cells and T cells both play a role. So having some peripheral inflammatory response that may be chronic I think would eventually lead to some type of neuroinflammation. And if we can block the neuroinflammatory pathways um, by either targeting the astrocytes, and the other cell type that we're starting to look at into is also the pericytes, and that they, they're very similar to the astrocytes as far as the protein expressions during inflammation. I think that would, that would definitely have some protective effects. I don't know if that addresses your question. Hi, it's Katie speaking. Yes, it does. Thank you so much. It gives me a lot of hope for the research that you're doing um, for all sorts of, you know, inflammatory diseases and neurodegeneration. So thank you so much for all your work and for being here once again. I really hope you come back and join us sometime. Thank you. Um, I have another question related to a guest speaker we had here. He used to be a professor at MROI. Um, but he's back in his homeland, um, China now. And I don't know if you read about this, the um, way um, he blocks the FSH, uh, pituitary hormone, um, 
and could improve cognition in mice with Alzheimer's. So um, his logic was that uh, mostly, you know, there's more Alzheimer's dementia in females than males. And um, he looked into hormones and, and found that this hormone um, trick, like um, blocking the hormone could basically um, help in the disease. Are you, do you think that um, this hormone could basically trigger the mechanisms you found? Um, did, did you look into hormones or male versus females, also maybe in mice? We, we have not looked at hormones, but we have looked at males versus females, not necessarily related to this, but more in the APOE4. Um, that the APOE4 female mice tend to have a higher neuroinflammatory response. And if we take the astrocytes from the females and males, they, they also tend to seem to have more of the uh, inflammatory response in, in that aspect. But we haven't looked at the hormones effect. Um, in culture, we can definitely try to do that just by adding different hormones. But no, we haven't really looked at what stimulates the, the inflammatory response in astrocytes. I mean, right now we just use the general mechanism, which is a TNF-alpha interferon gamma, which does lead to an increase of the ATPase and LCN2 and these other markers that we have uh, found. But yeah, I, no, we have not. Yeah, thank you. Uh... The good part was, you know, by blocking it, you could also solve other menopause-related issues. But um, yeah, it would be interesting to see. Um, I saw Mona; she uh, joined the stage. I'm not sure how much time you still have. Uh, just wanted to make sure um, if it's still okay to answer a few questions. Sure, sure. sure. I still have time. Okay, great. Thank you. Hey, Mona, welcome. Hi everyone. Hi Katarina. Um, this room is so awesome. Um, this is like a very interesting study. Um, you kind of asked my question, Katarina, because um, I was curious also if there was gender differences on the digoxin effects, um, but you kind of already answered it. So yeah, that was my only question. Thank you. So in the digoxin study, we actually did not use female mice. And one one of the in our mouse line, the females tend to be a lot more variable. Uh, we have them in a we had them in a mixed background, and we recently backcrossed them to a black six background. In the black six background, it seems that the female are a little bit more consistent, but in the mixed background, there was quite variability, and that the females would not have any tau pathology or have an excessive amount of tau pathology. So there, there is some, definitely there are some gender effects, but I, there's also um, the genetic background in the mouse line that, that we have it on. But we are intrigued about the, the male-female aspects. I think uh, the male-female astrocytes is, we have a postdoc that really wants to get into that, but she she's a little bit tied down with some other projects, but it's, it's an intriguing question. Hi, Dr. Olu. How are you today? 
do you want to ask a question or comment? Hello, um, I just joined, so I'm just uh, catching up. Thanks for inviting me to the room. Yeah, sure. Uh, the presentation is, is so pretty. <laughs> like uh, the images about the glia and the history of the discovery of the glia, it's really beautiful. Thank you for that presentation. It's yeah, the the history of the astrocytes, that, that timeline, I can, that's my own biased view. It's, uh, it's no, I'm sure there's a lot of other major discoveries that didn't include in that timeline, but I think it's really what I want to do with that timeline is illustrate that how underappreciated the poor astrocytes were for over a hundred years, uh, but more recently, I think it's been the past five ten years has been a major emphasis on trying to understand astrocyte biology. Yeah, like first it was only excitation important in the brain, then a little bit the inhibition got paid attention to, and now finally it's also about the glia. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, it is a major neurocentric world. I mean, when I first came to WashU, uh, I won't say the professor's name, but a very prominent one uh, basically told me that the Astroglioma was secondary to neural degeneration in Alzheimer's, and you know, what we see in our ALS is likely just due to an ALS effect. But I think the majority of investigators now here are looking at some microglial response and some astrocytic response, and you know that was just six, seven years ago. So, any comment uh, on uh, the connection with uh, SARS-CoV-2? I mean, it's been hotly debated for a while among virologists whether it's at all neurotrophic. Most of them don't seem to think that it fits that definition, but it certainly seems to uh, uh, interact with glial cells. Um, and you know, the the implication is that uh, perhaps some of the uh, some, not all of the uh, neurological or cognitive manifestations might have to do with that. Any insights? Yeah, we were just we we just we kind of discussed on that a little bit earlier. So uh, one thing that we'll add to that though is um, the COVID phenomenon is I don't think is necessarily a new thing. I mean, HIV and AIDS individuals also have dementia-related abnormalities. And I think it really just goes down to that. We're, we're now trying to understand the innate immune system and how it affects the central nervous system. I think for many, many years, we thought that the central nervous system was an immune privilege. Um, but we're, I think we're now getting to the point where we're saying that it's not necessarily an immune privilege. So if you do have some inflammatory response that's chronic in the periphery, I imagine that's going to lead to some type of pro-inflammatory response in the central nervous system, which can lead to some dementia-related yeah. abnormalities. So, so Akiko Yosaki's group at Yale uh, showed that um, just by uh, causing an infection in the gut, um, that could drive an inflammatory response that had uh, effects on the brain. This, is, of course, is in mice. Um, but, uh, and, and then the other thing that I'll mention is in HIV, uh, neurons specifically have the galactosiramide, uh, on their surface, which is uh, an alternative receptor for HIV. Um, whereas 
you know, again, there's some evidence that uh, SARS-CoV-2 infects neurons, but uh, it, it, it doesn't seem to be a, a robust thing, at least from the, the evidence available. But um, uh, astrocytes and, and, and microglia are very likely a different story. Right, 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, I think there's still a lot to for us to really understand the innate immune system. Obviously, we have you know, Gordon here at in St. Louis, and you know who found the microbiome and did how it's been affecting it. There's a number of collaborations with his lab and trying to understand, you know, what's the contribution of the gut microbiome and the inflammatory response in the gut in relation to amyloidosis and tau pathology and stuff like that. But yeah, there's still a lot for us to really understand, definitely. I have a question. So just going off the, the end of that, given that some COVID patients uh, can have Alzheimer's and dementia diagnoses, if they can ever be seen properly, um, seems to me that wouldn't that be consistent with I understand that we have to do a little bit more digging in terms of being able to say this type of, is it a glial cell or an astrocyte or where exactly, but there are certainly neurology studies, uh, mortuary studies that show that uh, COVID has an impact on, I think it was two to 4% loss of gray matter, depending on uh, timing and severity of initial infection. Any any thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I like I, I think as we start to investigate more the innate inflammatory response with the central nervous system inflammatory response, I think we're going to get better answers to that. Um, I know there's been recent studies suggesting that T cells and neutrophils and B cells all infiltrate in the central nervous system. So I imagine during these type of infections, there, there might be an increase in inf infiltration of these cells that can affect you. There was one preprint that uh, um, was, uh, you know, they, they said that um, the spike protein uh, caused T cells to cross the blood-brain barrier which, you know, if true is, is, you know, yet another way for the virus to get on the brain just by hitching a ride on the surface of, C of T cells or, or other cells with like CD 147. Um, but uh, I mean, that in itself is kind of, kind of uh, uh, concerning. Hi, Ranjana. Um, you had the question that you asked in the um, chat. I'm glad you came to the stage. Uh, please ask your question. Yeah, um, nice to meet you, all of you. I just um, jumped into the room, but I find it very um, interesting um, talking about brain health and Alzheimer's. Um, so, um, Dr. Gilbert, do you look at uh, the prostaglandin synthesizers taking place in the body with the PGE2 and PGE3 when you are uh, looking at the brain health? We have not. No, we, we have not looked into the prostaglandins. 
Okay. Do you know whether they're driving? No, no, I really, no, I couldn't speculate much on, on that aspect. Okay. So um, the PGE2 and PGE3 are two hormone processes taking place in the body. And the PGE2 is increasing inflammation in the body and the PGE3 is lowering uh, inflammation in the body. And it's very um, important to look at that when you look into brain health, but also generally um, omega-6-3 balance. And for that case as well, the summer brain fluidity in the body is very important um, because um, the brain health is also, um, it, I mean, there could be many different factors that's causing the brain health. One is genetic, uh, but one can also be inflammatory, like you mentioned before, that's coming from the gut health because um, the gut is connected to nervous system and the brain as well. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I mean, there is a large emphasis on trying to understand the, the gut interior system with the central nervous system. Uh, we ourselves have not looked into that, and I don't, I don't think we will go much into that. Okay, okay, I'm just curious. Thank you. Yeah, Oh, I just had um, a bit of a general question. You mentioned briefly that um, I, you know, part of my fascination with uh, uh, microglial cells in the brain is um, you mentioned at at, at one point um, between astroglia and uh, microglia cells or astrocytes, sorry. Um, there was thought to be some order of progression, but it's it's a more contemporary views. It's much more of a network. I thought uh, it'd be interesting if you could expand on that and how that relates to your work. Right, right. So I think some of the the some of the studies that came out of the Ben Barris lab had suggested that the microglia can can activate a specific astrocytic response by a few of the chemokines. I think C1Q, TNF alpha, and I don't recall the last uh, chemokine they used, but it's a trifecta of, of factors that were secreted by microglia would induce a toxic astrocyte response. And there was other studies that had suggested similarly that the microglia might be upstream from the astrocytes. However, in our studies and also in humans, we, we find that there is, it is more of a network, at least in, in human patients, one of the earliest responses in Alzheimer's disease is astrogliosis, not necessarily microgliosis. So I think there's still a lot for us to understand. Um, and it also varies between whether it's amyloidosis versus telepathy. I think that it gets even more confusing in that so at some point, microglia seem to be somewhat protective in amyloidosis, and at some point they become more detrimental. Whereas our studies are suggesting that Astrogliosis aren't necessarily a good thing at any point, in which you know, blocking astrogliosis is better for preventing uh, amyloidosis, whereas the microglia are a little bit more. There's still there's not clear understanding of how, when and how and if we should target inactivation of microglia. But yeah, definitely, I think there's a network, and there's the other component, which is illegal dendrocytes, and I think uh, we don't really 
have enough studies on illegal dangerous sites. And, and well, I think I mentioned the parasites as another component of the inflammatory system that we're not, we don't have enough knowledge on that aspect. I just have a question out of my curiosity because you just mentioned about the dendrity. I mean, uh, activity. So we know that the astrocytes protect the motor neurons against the non-cell autonomous cell death and uh, some of the dendritic abnormalities. And out of curiosity, did you uh, did you find any kind of evidences around dendritic activity? I mean, any differences because you just use different approach. And I was just wondering the, I mean, expansion of the dendrites and signaling that you mentioned as part of your paper. Did you notice any kind of uh, pattern during your in, experiment? In the in modern neurons, per se, and then the, the uh, decrease in dendritic arborization? Yes. Is, is that, yeah. No, but, you know, that's a, so the Bonnie lab had looked at one, one of the themes of what the Bonnie lab was looking at is axon and dendritic arborization. And they had looked at different mechanisms that can regulate the uh, apical dendrite and the uh, axon guidance. We did look for some of those proteins to see if they're dysregulated, but we I, we actually didn't see much of it. But I didn't really look into the neuronal aspect of it. But that, yeah, that, that would be. We do. We had the tools. We just didn't really look at too too much into it. But that is a good, interesting point. Exactly, because we are talking about NAK and we are not talking about, for example, specifically NAC, which is the calcium dependent, or we are talking about specifically neurons. I, I thought that it might be interesting. Yeah, we think there is a calcium. The sodium ATPase is linked to the, the calcium transporter. That is, that is one potential mechanism we're looking at to see if there's some dysregulation of the calcium signals. It might be very interesting because right now we have a NOx report as well. Yeah, um, thank you so much everyone for all the questions. Uh, Gilbert, um, we are almost you know, one hour and 20 minutes. Uh, okay. I want to check with you. It's probably late for you too. <laughs> it's getting late. So, uh, thank you yeah. so much. I, I really I enjoyed it. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a neat platform that you have here. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, share your knowledge and then also answering all of our questions, uh, some related to your research, some a little bit not related but you know it's like a more you know a different um way of interacting so um yeah i'm glad you came and um i wish you all the best for all your future research it's so important and if you have any updates please always come back here and share them with and um, um, thank you uh, i look forward to it <laughs> Great to meet everybody. Thank you so much and best of luck on, on to all of you. And hopefully we stay this COVID free for some time here. I know. I know. Yeah.
still too in Shanghai. It's currently my cousin lives there with his family. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well. Um. Yeah. Thank you so much, and uh, enjoy the rest of your night. And thank you everyone for coming. And um, if you liked um this type of discussions, please join the Science Society Club, and um, we will have more guest speakers um this week um let me just um tomorrow we will have at 10 p.m est so one hour later than when we usually start unlocking the code of sight uh, with dr bruce hansen and then on thursday morning we will have um dr kutak from poland joining us uh he's a, phys a nuclear physicist and he will talk What's his latest research about the interior of protons and how they are maximally entangled? He solved a long-standing hypothesis, showed that it's actually true. And then Dr. Huang um, will tell us, um, he is joining us from Albert Einstein uh, College here in New York City, um, why smokers actually don't get so much lung cancer as we expected and um, the mechanisms. And then we'll have from Japan joining us on Friday, uh, the team, um, Dr. Yanigasawa and Dr. Fukuma, reading pictures of our mind's eyes. So um, they're really, it's a really interesting research where they can basically read what you visualize in your in your mind so yeah thank you so much um gilbert come back anytime uh, it was a pleasure having you here thank you Dan, so and... much yeah. uh, you guys will enjoy enjoy rudy he's he's a he's great oh, you know. oh, but... <laughs> yeah he's, he's he's great yeah and he's yeah. Oh, wonderful. You should come. Thank you for coming. And um, yeah, have a good night, everyone. Bye. Thank you. Good night. Thanks. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.